0: Welcome to the Big Screen Symposium podcast. This session is from the Big Screen Symposium held in Auckland on the 9th and 10th of July, 2022. The Screen Industry Workers' Bill was introduced to Parliament in 2020 and is expected to pass in the coming months. In this panel discussion, Principal Policy Advisor at MB, Gayathri Ganeshan, the Executive Director of Sparta, Sandy Gilday, Executive Director of the Directors and Editors' Guild of Aotearoa New Zealand, Tuiru Fiu, Executive Director of the New Zealand Writers' Guild, Alice Sherman, and the Director of Equity New Zealand, Denise Roche, speak with Producer-Director, Leanne Foley, offering an overview of the bill and what it means for the screen industry. This session is presented by the SAE Institute.
1: Kia everyone and thanks for coming to the session about the Screen Industry Workers Bill. I suspect many of you, like me, haven't paid a huge amount of attention to the unfolding of the Screen Industry Workers Bill. We all know it's important for a number of reasons and for a number of different perspectives but most of us are so busy doing what we do, and let's be honest, what we do is hard, right? So it's, it's not always easy to pay attention to things that are important that come outside of the nightmare that is every next moment. So we haven't been fully engaged and, and, and how, with how the bill will work and what it means to each of us individually, but also as for the industry at large. There's a couple of key things to mention before we begin the conversation, The bill hasn't been passed yet, but we do anticipate it'll pass in the next few months. So it's imminent. In a nutshell, the bill is about collective bargaining. But it's important to understand the detail regarding the various elements haven't been negotiated yet. So this session isn't about what directors are going to get paid or when overtime kicks in or any of the things that kind of, you know, might have a a financial impact or lifestyle impact. That's not what this session's about. Those are things that are going to be negotiated going forward. This session is about how the bill will work, how those negotiations will, will occur, who it will include, and what happens next. We'll have a Q&A, or we'll have questions at the end, as mentioned. Please send your questions in throughout the presentation on your apps. But getting us to where we are today was the Film Industry Working Group, which started discussing the issues back in 2017. Every one of our panelists has been involved in some capacity with the Film Industry Working Group. So these people, some of whom will be negotiating on your behalf, they should be able to answer your questions at the end. So on stage, we have Sandy Gildia from Spada, Denise Roche from Equity New Zealand, Kioda. Tui Rufio from the New Zealand Directors and Editors Guild of New Zealand, um, Alice Sherman from the Writers Guild, Kioda. and last but definitely not least, we've got Gayathri Ganeshan from MB, who leads MB's work on the Screen Industry Workers' Bill, which was introduced to Parliament in 2020. is going to start with a presentation that outlines the bill and how it's going to work. So when we get to the discussion part, you actually understand what it is we're discussing.
2: Thanks, Leanne. Um, And thank you, Big Screen Symposium and the organizers for putting this together. Um, I think this is a really good time to actually talk about the bill before it passes so everyone knows what's coming. And it's great to have the opportunity for us all to talk to you directly about this. So I'm going to push a button now, and it works. Um, So today, we'll just take you through a really quick overview of the bill, um, the four main components in it and how it's going to work, and I'll talk to you a little bit about the process and timeline from here, and then we'll do questions after. Is that what you're thinking? So we begin in 2010. So what happened in 2010 is the Employment Relations Film Production Work Amendment Act was passed, also known as The Hobbit Law because of the Hobbit movies that were being filmed at the time. What this law did was remove film production workers from the legal definition of employee. What this means, film production workers can't challenge their employment status according to the real nature of the relationship they have with the person who's hired them. And this is important because for the vast majority of workers in New Zealand, there is the ability to do that challenge. And that decides whether you are an employee or a contractor, which is important because in New Zealand's labour law, Independent contractors are treated as commercial entities, as people doing business on their own account. On the other hand, employees are people who receive what we call statutory minimum entitlements, things like the minimum wage, holidays, sick leave. So the two types of worker are treated very differently under New Zealand law. In 2017, when there was a change of government, the incoming government decided it wanted to restore collective bargaining rights to the film industry as a whole. So collective bargaining is one of those things that only employees can do, that contractors can't do, because it's seen as anti-competitive if businesses were to group together. When the film industry working group was set up, I think some of the people here were on the OG, Film Industry Working Group, were you?
3: Five (laughs) years.
2: (laughs) So the Working Group met several times in 2018 and ultimately recommended a unanimous new model, a way forward for the whole industry to the government. The government then took this away, considered it deeply, and in 2019 announced that it was going to accept what the Film Industry Working Group had come up with. That then kicked off another process of policy development to actually draft the new law. This is what became the Screen Industry Workers' Bill, and it was introduced to Parliament in 2020. Um, That was two years ago. Um, There have been some things that have happened since then, Mm -hmm. which is why it hasn't passed yet, but we are expecting that it will pass in the coming months, so this is a great time to get up to speed with the bill and what it will mean for everyone in the industry. So, in a nutshell, the Film Industry Working Group's premise for their entire model is that the screen industry is unique among all the different industries and sectors in New Zealand, and therefore needs a bespoke model to you know, <coughs> determine how workplace relationships operate in the screen industry. Its first recommendation is that the Hobbit Law should be retained, but for all screen production work. Come back to the definition of screen production work shortly. And the next really important thing the working group recommended is that there should be four core principles that apply to all work in the industry. There should be good faith dealings between parties, There should be protection from bullying, discrimination, and harassment. There should be fair and reasonable termination of contracts. And there should be fair rates of pay for work done. Collective bargaining forms and has a really key link to these four key core principles. Because how do you decide a fair rate of pay? Through collective bargaining. So the working group also recommended a two-tier bargaining system at the occupational and enterprise levels. We'll get into the details of these later. And the intention of bargaining particularly at the occupational level, is to set minimum terms for work. So this is what doesn't exist for contractors at the moment, but that employees have. And the idea is that under the bill, minimum terms for contractors will be set through collective bargaining. The working group also recommended that a tiered dispute resolution system be available under the bill. So yeah, so when we go through each of the parts of the bill, we'll talk about more of these in detail, but I think it's important to say that the bill reflects what the working group recommended, there has been some changes in development along the way. So there was a public submissions process on the bill in 2020, so that has resulted in some development. And the other thing to note is that the bill is unique. It is a very comprehensive workplace relations system for contractors. No other contractors in New Zealand will have anything like this or have anything like this at the moment. And because it's been designed based on the realities of New Zealand's screen industry, it's probably also unique globally. What a fun experiment we're on. LAUGHTER so, let's start by talking about whose work the bill covers. The simple answer is that the bill will apply to contractors whose work contributes to the creation of a screen production. But I want to break that down into three separate elements. So the first, contractors, the bill is for contractors. Under the bill, the test for employment status will be the same as under the Hobbit law at present. So do you have a contract that says whether or not you are an employee? If it does, you're an employee. If not, you're a contractor. So that element of the 2010 law change is retained. The next element is the, is the contribution of the work. So it's about the work that you do. So the bill doesn't apply to work that is peripheral to the core creation of a screen production. So things like volunteer work, not covered. Support services, so if you've got a lawyer for a production who looks at things on the side... Their work's not covered. It's about people who are making a direct contribution to that core creative activity. That is the work that is covered by this bill. The bill also won't apply to companies who don't primarily operate in the screen industry. So if your company makes museum exhibitions and you happen to make one documentary, the people who do that work won't suddenly get brought into the bill just by virtue of that one documentary. So the reason for this is to avoid companies from having to straddle two different sets of employment law or industrial relations frameworks for their workers. The Next key element is a screen production. What is a screen production? So the Hobbit law at the moment basically applies to everything except things intended for television broadcast. So it is platform specific. That has been ditched under the bill. So the bill will apply to films. It'll apply to programs. It'll apply to computer-generated games is the term. But there are some key exclusions. Ads that are longer than five minutes, amateur productions, game shows, live events, music and dance, news and current affairs, recreation and leisure, you can read the rest. Why all these exclusions, you might ask. The reason is there was feedback during the process that there are significant numbers of employees, or at least enough employees, who work on these types of screen productions. So bringing them within the bill's coverage would have disadvantaged them. It's probably better for those employees to have stayed on the outside of the system. That's the reason for these exclusions. But this is one element of the bill where we kind of just need to try it out and see what happens. In the bill, it allows for a review after five years. So after five years of the bill being enforced, its operation across all aspects will be reviewed. And this is probably a key thing that will be looked at at that point. So when this bill comes into force, it will mean that not everyone who works in the screen industry will be covered by the bill. How do you figure out if you are covered? So, there's probably two key questions to ask. The first is Am I a screen production worker? The answer to that lies in the stuff we talked about on the previous slide. Do you make a core contribution to screen production that the bill covers? If yes, the next question is What type, what does your contract say? Does the contract that you were hired under say that you're an employee? If not, You are a contractor and this bill applies to you, and you should pay attention to the rest of this presentation. Um, But if it says that you're an employee, you're covered by employment law. Yeah, so I think the main thing that would differentiate between the two pathways. So, what are some examples we use? So, if you're a writer on a drama series, then you would look at whether your contract says whether you're an employee or not. If it is silent, if it doesn't use the word employee, then you are a contractor and the bill would apply to you. Whereas, if you were a camera operator on a rugby match, for example, That is not one of the types of screen productions covered by the bill. So even though your work contributes to it in a core way, you wouldn't be covered by the bill. So whether you're an employee or a contractor would then become about the real nature of the relationship test that applies to everyone else in New Zealand. So what will change under the bill? The first key changes changes under the bill have to do with individual contracts. What is an individual contract? It is the thing that records the agreement between a worker and the person who's hired them to do that work. So we call them the engager. We don't use employer because that denotes an employment relationship, which is not what this bill is about. So the terms we use are worker and engager. So these six rules will apply to all individual contracts covered by the bill once it's in force. The first rule, this has to do with the working group's core principle that there should be good faith dealings between parties. Everyone has to act in good faith which means you can't mislead or deceive one another or do anything that might mislead or deceive one another. We do have a lay name for this rule, but I'm not sure I'm allowed to say it because it has a swear word in it. Don't be a bad person, effectively, is what this rule means. (laughs) The next rule that's going to apply to all individual contracts is that contracts have to be in writing. This doesn't mean they have to be in paper. It just means they can't be verbal. You can't, can't be a handshake agreement. There needs to be something... An electronic form is fine that records the agreement between the worker and their engager. The next rule is that there are going to be new processes for making and varying contracts. What are these processes? Well, before entering into a contract, a worker must be shown the terms that they are being asked to sign up to. Um, they must be given an opportunity to seek advice on those terms if they want to or raise any issues. They have to be told that they have this opportunity to seek advice or raise issues. And finally, if the worker did raise any issues, they have to be considered and responded to. See rule number one in good faith. So these basic procedural steps will apply when making or varying contracts under the bill. It doesn't mean that there will need to be like a standard two-week cooling-off period between giving someone a contract and them agreeing to it. It'll all come down to what is reasonable in the circumstances in terms of how far in advance workers need to be given a copy of the contract. The next rule for individual contracts is that all contracts must have certain mandatory terms in them. So there are four mandatory terms. The first thing that every individual contract must say is that all parties will comply with their obligations under the Human Rights Act and the Health and Safety at Work Act. So this is a reminder that even though these are contracting relationships, your health and safety protections and your anti-discrimination protections still apply. Just a reminder to everyone involved that that is still the case. The second mandatory term for individual contracts is a process by which workers can raise complaints of bullying, discrimination, and harassment, and by which those complaints will be responded to. So this goes back to another one of those core principles from the working group. The third mandatory term is that all individual contracts need to have something in them saying how any disputes that may arise under that contract will be dealt with. Um, So there is a standard dispute resolution process provided by the bill that all contracts can just refer to. You don't have to make up your own one. And we'll talk more about that in the dispute resolution section later. And finally, the last mandatory term. This has to do with another core principle from the working group. All contracts need to say what the notice period for termination is, if any, and they also need to say whether there is any compensation associated with terminating a contract, just so that everyone knows what will happen in those situations, what the parameters are for terminating a contract. So let's get to it, the meat of it, collective bargaining. When we say collective bargaining, we generally mean a process by which workers group together to boost their bargaining power and negotiate with their engager as a single unit. In New Zealand today, only employees can bargain collectively. So this is because contractors are treated as commercial entities. Under the bill, this will change. Contractors who are covered by the bill will be able to group together and bargain collectively. The bill will allow two levels of collective bargaining. These are called occupational bargaining and enterprise bargaining. The hint is in the name. Occupational bargaining will cover all work done by an occupational group, whereas enterprise bargaining tends to take, will happen between, within a single production or production company. So occupational bargaining is the type of bargaining that will produce minimum terms across the industry because they will apply to all work within that class. Um, And enterprise bargaining will instead produce production-specific terms that could sit on top of those occupational minimum terms that have been negotiated. So enterprise bargaining is the only level of collective bargaining that currently exists in New Zealand for employees. So this is the main level at which everyone in New Zealand has been doing collective bargaining, the employees, for the last 30 years. That will soon change, but under a different bill, and also only for employees. So... We're just doing two at once for the screen industry just to get get ahead of all that. This means that there will be several layers of contracts. You've got your occupational contracts at the very bottom that will set a floor. So what these occupational contracts are doing is saying that we as an industry do not accept work to take place below these terms. All work that happens in the industry must sit above those minimum terms, so they're a floor. Enterprise contracts will have to build on the floor set by occupational contracts, and your individual contracts sit on top of all of those. So there is plenty of room to play for individual contracts as long as you don't go below the terms of any of the enterprise contracts or occupational contracts that might also apply to that work. So whenever you're making a contract, you have to look below to see if there are any minimum terms that also apply to the same work for which you are making an individual contract. And if those enterprise or occupational contracts exist... You need to be contracting above those minimum terms. And at any point in time, a worker's individual contract will be the best terms read across all these three layers of contracts. So there's some general rules in the bill for all collective bargaining that will take place under the bill. So the first one is that bargaining must be done in good faith, just like your individual contract relationships. What this means is not misleading or deceiving one another. But there's a few additional rules as well just for collective bargaining. Parties that are involved in collective bargaining must meet one another regularly. You're not allowed to just put something out into the ether and ignore it. And once bargaining has been initiated, parties must, you know, once someone has put a proposal on the table, must consider the proposal and respond to it. So these rules are just intended to keep things moving along and to ensure that bargaining is happening, you know, in a meaningful way, that it's not superficial. Once bargaining begins, something must be produced, So there must be a collective contract produced at the end of negotiation. Another rule is that industrial action is not allowed during bargaining, but there are some special processes that exist under this bill to help move past any deadlock that might happen during the bargaining process. All collective contracts must also contain certain mandatory terms, and these are in the grey box. This is a slightly longer list than what currently has to go into collective agreements for employees, and the reason for that is because... These collective contracts have to do the heavy lifting of doing things like setting your minimum pay rates and all your other minimum terms, which isn't necessarily the case for employees. So that's why the bill requires all collective contracts to include minimum terms for pay, for breaks, where the public holidays are recognised, what the hours hours of work and availability for work are, and what the termination rules are. All collective contracts will also need to set minimum process rules for bullying, discrimination, and harassment complaints. So remember, these are a mandatory term for individual contracts. What this means is if an occupational contract or an enterprise contract has a really thorough, fleshed-out process for responding to bullying, discrimination, and harassment issues, your individual contract can just refer to it, and that's your job done. The other thing that has to go into your collective contracts uh processes about dispute resolution. So this is, again, to give you an opportunity to do some work in your collective <coughs> contracts. That means you don't have to do it in your individual. But also so you can have production-specific or occupation-specific dispute resolution processes. So during the working group process, we heard about script arbitration, for example, for writers. That might be something that you put in your collective contracts, so it just applies across the board. So let's talk about the two types of bargaining under the bill. Occupational bargaining is the one that will set these minimum terms. Occupational bargaining produces things called occupational contracts. The parties negotiating occupational contracts will be what we call worker organizations and engager organizations, i.e. representatives of workers and engagers. Your representatives of workers are your guilds and your unions. And similarly, your representative of engagers will be an organization that represents engagers' interests. So workers and engagers don't directly take part in bargaining. Instead, they participate through their representative Organizations who will check in with them about what they're looking to get out of bargaining and take any proposals back to them. So, because occupational contracts are intended to set that floor, that base of minimum, they will apply to all work done by an occupational group. So, once there is one occupational contract for a particular group of workers, it applies to everyone, even if you weren't a member of a worker or an engager organization that negotiated it. That's because you can't have minimum terms if their application is optional. That doesn't really make the minimum terms anymore. So the bill has seven occupational groups in it. So it's got some predefined occupations, and they're designed to not have overlapping coverage. So we've got our five occupational groups in the top box. Composers, directors, game developers, performers, and writers. If your work isn't in one of those five groups, you will either sit in the production technicians or the post-production technicians grouping, depending on whether you're working in the production phase or the post-production phase. There can only be one occupational contract at a time for each occupation. And the way you can trigger bargaining for one of these occupational contracts is by showing that there is enough support on the side wanting to initiate bargaining. Once bargaining has finished and you've got a draft contract, it goes to all of the workers it would cover who get to vote on it and say whether they accept its terms or not. And, you know, subject to that successful ratification vote, it will then come into force and apply to all work done by that occupational group and everyone who hires workers to do that type of work. It is possible to get exemptions from the terms of an occupational contract, except for pay. And this goes back to that working group principle about fair rates of pay. So a really important thing that's going to be done by these occupational contracts is set minimum minimum pay rates across the industry. So you can't use an exemption to effectively contract out of that. So the bill's also got a really detailed exemption process Um, that parties can go through if they want, but ultimately exemptions are only intended to be used in exceptional circumstances. The second level of bargaining under the bill is enterprise bargaining. So enterprise contracts are negotiated by a slightly different group of parties compared to your occupational ones. So these are negotiated between worker organizations and engages directly. And that's because they will only apply to work within a single production or a single production company. So that. Engager or company will directly negotiate these with the guild concerned. And because they are very specific within a single production or company, they will only apply to members of the worker organization that have negotiated the enterprise contract. You can add the ability for non-members to opt in, but you also don't need to. It's up to you. Bargaining for enterprise contracts can only be initiated if all parties agree to it, but there can be multiple enterprise contracts within a single production or a single production company. So those are some of the key differences between enterprise bargaining and occupational bargaining. And these differences sort of reflect the different way they're intended to operate within this overall system under the bill. Let's talk about dispute resolution. So this one's relatively straightforward, she says. The bill has a default dispute resolution system in it, and this largely reflects what the working group recommended. So there are three tiers. The first tier is mediation. So this is a voluntary process where all parties come and sit around the table with a mediator who helps them work through their issues. If mediation doesn't work, you can move on to getting an arbitration from a tribunal. So the term used in the bill is a determination because that is what we call the things that are done by the Employment Relations Authority. That is the tribunal that will make binding decisions on disputes. People do have to go through a mediation first before they can get a determination. The reason for this is to encourage disputes to be resolved at the lowest level possible before relationships have broken down. So that's why there is a need to at least attempt mediation before moving on to getting a binding decision from that tribunal. Once you've got a decision from the tribunal, it is possible to appeal these. These will go to the employment court. Another key thing to remember is that these processes are a default. So You know how all individual contracts needed to have a term in them about dispute resolution? You can just say, whatever the bill says, that is the dispute resolution process for this individual contract. But you could also have a different dispute resolution process if you wanted in your individual contract. But there are some things you can't contract out of. So the bill has some financial penalties associated with different types of wrongdoing. For example, breaching the duty of good faith. You can't give someone else the ability to come in and award a financial penalty against someone. So other than, you know, those limitations, it is possible for people to add on to the dispute resolution process in the bill or modify it, or if they're happy with it, just reference it in their individual contracts, and that satisfies that requirement in terms of the mandatory terms. There are also some unique dispute resolution features specifically for collective bargaining disputes, and this is to reflect the fact that industrial action is not possible within the system. So... If mediation doesn't work before going to determination, there is this thing called facilitated bargaining. So it's sort of a more intense form of mediation where you have a more directive, independent third party who sits there with the bargaining parties and tries to guide them through their dispute. And if your dispute is about what a particular term should be that goes into a collective contract, and if you still can't agree after mediation and facilitated bargaining, there is a process in the bill by which the tribunal, the Employment Relations Authority, can fix the terms in the collective contract. What that means is they'll ask all the bargaining parties for suggestions and then pick one based on what they think is best for the work that's going to be covered by the collective contract as a whole. So that was a whistle-stop tour of the four main parts of the bill. What happens now? Well, first the bill will pass at an unspecified date, unknown to you and me. We think it's going to be in the coming months, but this depends on the availability of time in the House of Representatives, because it is jostling against every other bill that the government is trying to pass. After the bill passes, it will come into force three months later. So there is a three-month period at which everyone will have the final text of the bill and be expected to start preparing to implement it. When the new law comes into force, what happens from that day, from day one, is that all New contracts will have to follow those six rules we talked about for individual contracts. For pre-existing contracts, i.e. contracts that are entered into before the bill comes into force, you don't need to go out and amend them right away to put the mandatory terms in them. You have an extra 12 months to do that. But other than that, the new rules will start applying to all contracts immediately. Another thing that happens on day one is that collective bargaining can begin. So can begin... Not just not has to begin. Parties can do things like registering as worker organisations and engager organisations under the bill. But there is no strict time frame under the bill for when collective bargaining has to be done by or saying that it has to be done. The other thing that starts from day one is that people can start using the bill's dispute resolution system. So all of that will happen on day one. The next key milestone is probably one year after the bill passes. So that is the point at which your pre-existing contracts, your contracts that predate the bill, need to be amended to add those mandatory terms. So we have some figures from a couple of years ago that show something like more than 90% of contracts in the industry don't run for more than a year. So we're expecting it's only going to be a very small number that are going to be amended or need to be hunted down and then amended. We also get asked a lot about when you know, when the results of collective bargaining will start being visible or when, you know, the benefits of these minimum terms will start spreading across the industry. The answer to that is it depends. I'm sure these people will talk about the many factors involved in deciding whether to initiate bargaining, how to proceed with bargaining, the pace at which to do bargaining. But ultimately, assuming all of that is done and you've negotiated a collective contract or an occupational contract specifically, once it's been voted on and ratified, it gets sent to us at MB, we publish it, and the act of publishing it triggers a six-month period. So six months later, all new contracts to which that occupational contract applies, like for example, if it's the performer's occupational contract, six months after that, all new contracts for performers will need to meet the terms of that occupational contract. Similarly, with the individual contracts, there is an extra little period of time for your pre-existing contracts, they will get another six months. So 6 plus 6, 12 months after publication for your pre-existing contracts to meet the terms of the new occupational contract. There's many time periods up there that add up to things like years. So we are definitely at the very start of what could be a long process before some of these things become reality. I think the only other thing I'd point out at this point is that there is that difference between the collective bargaining bits of the bill and all the other parts of the bill that relate to individual contracts, dispute resolution, The individual contracts and dispute resolution parts of the bill are not optional. They start on day one and they will apply to everyone. But collective bargaining, what the government does is provide a framework and ultimately it's up to parties to decide whether to use it and how to use it. So that bit is within the industry's control in terms of timing.
1: That's me. Thank you. So you can see there's been a lot of mahi go into getting us here and there's still an enormous amount of work to be done, which is, I know slightly daunting even, because there's questions about who's doing it, who gets paid to do it, how do we do it, who talks to who, who pays who to talk to who, blah, blah. But I'm going to start, I'm going to actually start with Alice from the Writers Guild, who's been on, was on the working group right at the very beginning. Maybe just tell us what you think is important for everyone to know from your perspective in terms of what we've just heard and any issues you think we should go forward with discussing.
3: I think the most important thing to keep in mind is that we are at your service, so you are determining in the room what is going to happen with the bill as it follows through its pathway. I'm not deciding on your behalf, as Tui or Denise or Sandy, we're all at your service with regards to what is going to be ultimately in the contracts. We've worked really hard over the five years as a core group of collective cross-sector together and i would say that it is a compromised bill in terms of we've all made a compromise to get ourselves to these recommendations so it's no one's perfect bill but it is our bill and it's quite unique to us and i think we need to remember that it's something that we don't have so it's about embracing it and it's about going what can you do with us to help you in the collective bargaining i think that's the biggest point for me Just to add.
4: Alice said, um, you saw reference to a term there. So even though, I mean we've never really had collective bargaining um, within the screen industry um, in most of our lifetimes. I mean, it did exist at one point, but it went away quite a long time ago. So this is new for all of us in many respects within the industry. But the other thing is that we're at the very beginning. and the term of the contract, whether it's three years, four years, five years, six years, those first initial terms, get, there's a chance to renew them, there's a chance to improve them from whatever perspective you're looking at. So it's not like once they're set in place, that's it. You know, it's, it's the starting point for us all on this very long journey that we're going on.
1: Denise, how, how are you feeling about where we're at and where we're going?
5: Oh, I think it's a really exciting time for the screen sector. This is a real maturing of the industry. What it means is that by setting those minimum standards and then and bargaining collectively, you're able to um, predict what budgets will be with some surety. We've got some work to, um, to be that we need to do to ensure that the funders know about that so that we can set those minimum minimums at a decent level but it is gonna be a game game changer in terms of uh, not compete, you know, for us anyway, for performers, not competing against each other in a downward cycle. So this is about building incomes up over time, building working conditions up over time. And these are basic basic sort of tools that are used by workers in all sorts of different industries all the time. So it's fantastic that the screen sector has now got access to this because it will make life quite different for performers, uh, directors, editors, writers, producers, um, and hopefully will create increased stability for our, our sectors.
1: And Sandy, it's possible that we could be looking at this group of people and see Sparta as an engager and, and therefore a group that is looking at this from a different perspective. Tell me, is that true or are you looking at it from the same perspective?
6: Um, I think so in our industry that it's you actually have a lot of people on on you know the panel or in the audience who swap hats all the time. There are lots of people who are director-producers, you yourself included, writer-producers. I think we've got a very fluid system, we've got a very fluid ecosystem, which I think bodes well for a very constructive and robust process going forward. I think for Sparta's perspective we kind of go baby steps. So number one, what is necessary from day one of the bill, as um, Gayathri mentioned. So we will be making sure that everybody knows from the engager side, the production companies, the producers, what they need to have those mandatory terms because they will be enforceable from the day one of the bill. Unlike the collective bargaining, as you've heard, will take a little bit more time for us to get our ducks in a row and also to get the, the resourcing that will be needed to undertake bargaining. So yes, yeah, so we'll make sure that the disputes resolution, we've started having discussions. There's been a lot of really good work. I want to shout out to ScreenSafe, Sparta's on the working group. There's been a lot of really good, good work in health and safety over COVID. There's also with the sexual harassment guidelines. So I think in terms of, as Denise said, the maturing of the industry, ensuring we have standardisation where possible, where we have people coming into the industry with an idea of what it might look like to work in the industry, I think it's quite a. It all depends where you land, kind of approach at the moment, and who you work with. So it would be really nice to smooth that out a little bit as well. So,
1: um, just before I go into that, there's a, you know there's terms that get thrown about. Good faith, that's one of my favourites. So, who is going to be the judge of how we frame a term as loaded? as good faith. How does, that, how does that fall?
2: So, technical answer time. Um, some terms have a precise definition in the bill. So good faith, for example, is one of those terms that has a definition in the bill. And this definition's actually been carried over from the working group's report. So, you know, if parties don't agree with, you know, I could say I'm acting in good faith, and you could be like, no, that is so not good faith. Take it to mediation, see if a mediator can help you work through it. If that doesn't work, and if you're like, you really are being a real thing about this good faith, you could apply to the Employment Relations Authority to get an actual decision that I have not been doing my things in good faith. Okay, so I'm going to go
1: to your questions, because I think it's really important that uh, we get as many of those through as possible. So um, one question is, is Sparta the only engager organisation that's at the initial stages or at the moment? Mm-hmm. And is Sparta in discussion with any of the guilds towards putting occupational contracts in place
3: yet?
6: I don't know if I've got Oh, there we go. You can't have the workers without an engager, so yes. We can't do it's, occupational it's cool. contracts
3: until the bill passes over the line. Yeah. So at the moment, if we were to enter into a collective arrangement, um, we'd actually be working against the Commerce Act and the Commerce Act is going to be changed to allow for this bill to occur. So, uh, no, we can't do that right now. But I think the thing to remember is there's actually already some guidelines in place for a few of us organisations. Writers Guild have got um, model contracts that we negotiated with Sparta back in the early 2000s. There's the IPA for the performers, um, and the, blue book. Blue the Blue Book for the technicians. So, there are actually some standards in place at the moment, they're just not enforceable and they don't include rates. And will things like the Blue Book, do you
1: think, be a starting point for all the conversations going forward? Well, not to speak for the Screen
6: Industry Guild in Aotearoa, New Zealand, but yes, I mean... Couldn't I couldn't mean, be here, yeah. Well, yeah. Kelly definitely does send her, send her love. It's They've done so much work on it, and we've actually just in the process of reviewing the guidelines of the Blue Book that it just makes sense, and Sue MacDonald would, I'm sure, also say why, why restart from scratch when you've got a document which has underpinned, I'd say, really strong working relationships over the last 40 years, I think it's, in, it's been in existence. So it's, it's, it's
1: a great foundational document. And that's good for everyone to know, you know. Can I just... Yeah, yeah, jump in, go.
4: Yeah, um, While we're not certainly entering into any kind of negotiating at this point in time, we are working collectively to try and figure out on those things that we can all agree on just that it's going to make it easier for us when it comes time to bargain. So there are certain things that we're discussing about whether we can all agree on them or not.
1: And are you going to be, will, will the guilds and unions be holding who is to have conversations with their members to make sure? Sh- yes. So yeah, we, make-
5: there's actually a requirement of the process. So before we start, but before we can start bargaining, we actually have to come back to our occupational groups and ask if they want us to go, to enter into bargaining. Because there's no point doing it other, otherwise, and then there is that. That basically sets up a democratic process um, for us to feed back to our members about what's going on. Once the contract, once you've finished negotiations, once that's been looked at by the Employment Relations Authority, it can be voted on by members. And this is this is similar to how other employees negotiate their collective agreements.
1: There's a plug for you guys, everybody who's not a member of a guild. And yeah, now and might be a good time to join if you've avoided that till now. Quick question: Has MB been doing any work with the funding organisations to prepare them for this? Because clearly there could be an impact on budgets.
2: So we've been keeping them in the loop about what is coming. Um, but the side of MB that tends to work more directly with the funding organisations is not our side of MB. So we're from the labour market policy side, we do collective bargaining rules, we do rules for employment disputes, and we work really closely with our counterparts on the industry development side, who work with the Ministry for Culture and Heritage, with the Film Commission, NZ the Te Paho. but we're technically two different parts of MB.
6: Has Spada, we've had an initial, a collective meeting with um, funders, and just to, I suppose, start, once again, it's like socialising and saying if we are going to be going into negotiate, A, there's, number one, the resourcing of the collective bargaining process. And then there is also what happens if when the minimums are set, there is an inflationary effect on budgets. What does that look like when we have contestable funding pools which have been stagnant for how many years? So, yeah, we have. And then Sparta had a... MB with the Taylor um, called the other night on Zoom and we invited broadcasters and funders to that. So, once again, it's just all about trying to get the... You invited them. There. Did
1: they come? Yep. Good. Are well, they here? they could. Have we got anyone from New Zealand on air or Film Commission? I think I saw Chris. Yeah. Yeah, yeah Film Commission, good. Because, obviously, this is a huge moment for the industry. So, <laughs> is the sense of the moment that, that everyone feels like it's progressing without too much animosity? Has it felt... A positive... Having tracked through the whole thing. Five years, she gets a hand, man. That's a lot of not very exciting meetings. Think... Let's... <laughs>
3: and two years, well, I think. Five years, yeah. Um, starting the process, walking into the room, Richard Fletcher and I just sort of looked at each other and went, we can do this, it'll be fine you know i think the animosity dropped the moment we realized we had a responsibility of the whole sector upon us to get this right it wasn't just us for our members individually with one viewpoint it was actually full sector and so animosity is probably the most furthest away word we've had i think we've had frustrations in the conversation but that's because we all do really different things like the screenwriters they're going to look really different in this collective bargaining you know the outcomes for them in terms of contracts are going to be completely different mm to a lot of the other workers in, in this um, in the collective bargaining. I mean, looking at that timeline that came up before, it said, you know, 90% of uh, contracts are not going to be affected by the timeline. The 10% is all screenwriters, because screenwriters have option agreements which run for five, 10, 15 years sometimes. So for us, we've actually got a lot of work to do in that catch up. So for us, there's actually gonna be a lot of work to do at the very beginning stages, whereas a lot of these people are working day to day, week to week. So there's a little there's going to be some real differences for us. So that's probably our our only thing is we all have different points of view, but for very real reasons. Sure.
1: But well, that's that's encouraging now.
6: That's encouraging. And
3: I think what's really important
6: is that, you know, we all currently sit in the seat that we do. There have been changes through the years, and I think it, it's beholden to us as individuals not to egoise things and just kind of like get bullish. I think it's also as a precursor to what the bill is trying to introduce into our sector. I think once again, we hold the, the, I suppose, the beginning of the responsibility, the genesis of how we work professionally together. And that means we will agree to disagree on some things with all due respect and it will never become anything that is, you know, a personal tearing down. I think we need to start learning how to have difficult conversations and to be able to just sort of resolve and work through. And I think having the backstop of a disputes resolution is really healthy for us as well because it does help people start exercising that muscle rather than just sort of going, I'm just going to leave this job, I'm not going to say anything, I'm just going to move on and that problem will just be either replicated or amplified in another
1: situation. Just from a practical perspective, the Directors Guild goes into negotiations on behalf of directors you're negotiating with Sparta at the moment i think that's how it works it just maybe give us a quick summary of how we anticipate these negotiations to work sure i mean once your your members give you the authority to to collectively bargain on their behalf
4: obviously we have to not only get their uh, agreement on entering initiating bargaining but also about what the terms and conditions might be but for the Directors and Editors Guild, um, you would have seen in the occupational groups that there are seven uh, occupational groups. So the directors have their own occupational group. Editors don't have their occupational group. They fall into technicians post-production. And inside technicians post-production is everybody in post-production, so it's colorists. Uh, we will also be obviously um, <coughs> negotiating on behalf of assistant editors, but audio engineers, uh, visual effects people, anybody who works in the post-production sector falls into that group. So we will be representing our people, which are the editors and the assistant editors, but there are other guilds, there are other people in, there in those oc- who have occupations that fall into that group. So we've still got to figure out, OK, well, how are we going to work on behalf of their representatives? And the other thing that it's important to realise is that you have to register, to represent your occupational group, both on the engager side and on the worker side, and more than one entity could register. That's a possibility.
1: Okay, so let's just say, for example, you're going in to negotiate on behalf of directors in this instance. You're negotiating, I believe at the moment, with Spada. So you go in with a set of demands. How are you approaching
4: that? So it it won't be demands. No conditions that we'd like them to agree to. But, you know, to work out the structure of it is is something that we're already sort of discussing, is how do we approach entering those negotiations? And one example is we have been having initial discussions about bans of budgets, for example
3: all of us together, yes. we've, as all guilds and engagers. we've been talking about budget bans and other
1: things. And that was one of the questions. Yeah. Has yeah. there been work about how this is going to impact on budget? Yeah, yeah. so
4: we're, we're having those discussions. We haven't reached any agreement, but we're trying to get some of those things out of the way in advance that we can all agree upon, just to make it easier when we come to a negotiate. And then obviously we'll be having different conditions for editors, for directors, for assistant editors, based on trying to set those minimum standards uh, under the occupational uh, bargaining, and then the enterprise bargaining, which would typically be with production, a particular production.
1: Now, We've
5: got the opportunity for this consistent standardisation, um, which is what we're working on now, which, you know, just creates that sort of platform of, of minimum standards that everybody knows about, so it makes it really easy to enforce
4: and to bed them in.
1: Now, this is sorry, the Leanne. question... Oh, just, sorry. Just add, oh, sorry. There
4: was one other thing. On the slide, there were certain things that need to be in the, in the agreement, so yep. those are the simple things that we will be negotiating. Starting with, for, Yeah. Yep. Pay now, rates, this, holidays, this is, the that.
1: details haven't been worked out, so we don't have minimums, we don't have any of those things. This is at the beginning, but this is an interesting question, which is why no industrial action? If you don't get paid, are you allowed to withdraw your labour? So, there you go. Speak that a to that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's really tricky. Why is there no industrial action?
2: So, the Film Industry Working Group recommended that industrial action not be allowed. So, I think the thing you need to remember about the Working Group recommendations feel free to chime in later, is that the recommendations themselves are a compromise. They were effectively a negotiated outcome because the industry was told, if you can come up with one solution, we'll do it. So that's why there is no industrial action in the bill. The government accepted that recommendation. However, this doesn't affect a worker's ability to refuse to perform unsafe work under the Health and Safety at Work Act. That does not change under this bill. And in recognition of the fact that you can't take industrial action, there are slightly different thresholds to move up tiers in the dispute resolution process. So it's not as hard to, you know, if you're at a stalemate, there is no ability to take industrial action. It's not as hard to get to the point where someone can come in and resolve that issue so that parties can move beyond it and keep bargaining.
1: And in terms of the working group, why was
3: that recommendation made? Oh, this is my favourite topic. The on the record is that we did this is a compromise this is a compromise model. We came to this compromise because of the arbitration and mediation process that we would receive from this model. And there are triggers within the bill and and once you get through collective bargaining. So if something goes wrong on set, you've actually got means to do something about it now. I think at the moment no one has a means to do many things that aren't costly. So let's say Tui and I work together and he decides not to pay me. Right now I can just keep going to his house and knocking on his door and asking him to pay me and that would be that. Or I could try and take him to a small claims court if I had some money. But under this bill, they can people. I can go to my guild and say this has happened. The guild can then go to TUI and say, hey mate, you haven't paid? We can enforce that. And I think that's the difference. These things are now enforceable. What we're working with at the moment is unenforceable. So there's guides, there's minimums, but they're not enforceable. And that's the difference with this model. And that's the compromise we got to.
1: Can I just-
6: Just back to the room where me and Tui are negotiating. So I think there's a really um, important thing, and I'm not going to say, like, I'm talking loud because the producers would say that, but I would like to say that I think collectively we all need to have a very pragmatic approach to what we can set as the minima because we do not want to get to a situation, given everything will be enforceable, where it is prohibitive and that we have minimums set that are very, very difficult which means that we'll just have, I'm not really quite sure what it might look of. I mean, yes, productions may drop. We may have less of them because if there is an inflation in budgets, um, that's obviously the wider discussion to have with broadcasters and funders. But I still think in terms of expectations, you know, the elegancy of the hierarchy of contracts does mean that, you know, you can build on your foundational Collective agreement, that would sure. be what I, sure. what I would
1: say. I mean, we don't have that much time left, but just I think it's really important that people leave the room and think about what the bill me- needs to them. And I, and there's things that I know I'm hoping people are thinking about because I am, issues around how sometimes minimums become maximums. Personally, I'm terrified of minimum rates because what happens is that can become the rate and how do we try and ensure that doesn't happen, blah, blah, blah. People have asked what does it mean if it's an amateur production, so where do we draw the line? Is there some delineation in it?
2: amateur productions are not covered by the bill.
1: But who decides what's an amateur production? There's a definition in the bill. Great. Um, Somebody.
5: To, answer, to answer your question about minimums, minimums are collective bargaining will happen at the end. So it's not like that's the minimum forever. There are there is renegotiations that go on, because um, each collective agreement or contract will have a termination, will have an end date when you renegotiate. On top of that, there is the ability to do enterprise bargaining. But what we're doing is setting a floor. We haven't got a floor at the moment, which means most people, particularly for performers, have been under the floor.
4: The other thing to um, remember is that triangle with the occupation, enterprise, and individual contracts. So just because you have an occupational contract, it doesn't mean you can't have a higher rate in your individual contract. And up—you know that can be negotiated depending upon your experience, your ability, and all those other sorts of things. So we're, it's a base that we're setting.
3: I think this is also where it's time for us to mature as an industry. This is about negotiation. So you're in charge of your job and what you're doing, and you have the right to say no if it's too low. And we've got to get to that point as an industry where you go, okay, for the work that I'm doing, this is the occupational level, but actually the value is up here. And going for the triangle, we can go to an individual agreement at the top, we can negotiate up. And that is something that we don't do currently. People take a job or not. It's maturing. One of the questions is,
1: um, how is sufficient support from workers stroking gaugers defined in order to trigger the bargaining?
2: It just means that more people want it than the number of people who don't want it. So when a guild applies to initiate bargaining, the guild's members get counted up. Um, It triggers a public submissions process during which other workers in that occupation get to have their say as well. And then the Employment Relations Authority counts the number of people who want it, the number of people who don't want it, and that group just has to be larger.
1: So as we're coming to the end, I think it's really important that we, and, and I'm as guilty as... I'm super guilty of just kind of putting my head down and and not dealing with this. In fact, I didn't even know this was about to happen until they asked me to do this. So I've fully ignored it. But I do think this is a pretty much, this is a really big moment for the industry, a really big moment. And we can't afford to just ignore what's happening. So please do engage with these people who are doing such a lot of work on your behalf. There are a lot of questions around as we said before, that we haven't quite worked out because it's going to be a massive amount of time how that's
3: going to be funded, I think. Have there been any ideas out there how that's going to work? So at the moment, um, MB, thank you, love you, love this. We've all got 50,000 to step to the negotiation table, but if we have more than one of us on a worker side, we'd have to split that 50,000. So there is some money coming from the government to fund this. The rest of it, we will have to find support through industry and members to fund the work. This is not going to be free. We have to find the funding somehow. That's a big old golden question mark right now. And it's important that you
1: engage now, not once everything's in place, because that's really freaking boring for everyone who's done the work, right? So don't wait till the contracts are sorted to give your views on how this should proceed. Please get involved now, Or I give all these people permission to shout if you call them afterwards and go, oh no, I'm not happy about this. So it's important that we engage. So, unless I don't have any more questions, other than um, somebody's asked where we get all this information from.
2: Respective Guild websites. And then if you go to the MB website, there's some information about the bill. You can read the bill. I don't know if I recommend it, it's very boring
4: do read the bill.
2: <laughs> if you've got any questions, you can email MB. We are here to answer any of your questions about the bill. Though so that is a shared inbox, so if you're going to send abuse about any people in particular, lots of us will see it.
0: You can
5: come to your guilds as well. Yeah. You can ask your guilds.
0: Thank you very much to everybody. Thank you so much. The Big Screen Symposium 2022 is brought to you by Script to Screen. We are grateful to our event partners, the New Zealand Film Commission, New Zealand On Air, AUT, Images and Sound, and Te Mangai Paho. Voiceover is by me, Anna Corbett, and music by Poddington Bear.